and families. And I trust that the things that we say are not only true to the Word of God, but they are something that's going to be beneficial to each and every one of us. I want to begin our study this morning by noting with you the beginning of the family relationship that's revealed back in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible handy, you might want to be opening it to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter. This is a passage that we alluded to earlier in our study during the Bible class uh, arrangement, but we want to kind of look at it even a little bit more fully at, at this time. Verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, from, uh, rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he, brought, or he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. From that time on, the home and the family have actually become the bedrock of all societies. When you get into the New Testament, you find in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 that the writer reminds us that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Now, what's interesting about that, I believe, is that he is crossing all cultural boundaries here. That is, that marriage is something that is honorable in all cultures. And, and really, this is true. Regardless of how uh, you know primitive a culture may be, they have something that they deem to be marriage, and they esteem that relationship. Now, we also pointed out in our previous study how that in our culture and in our society, that, that the idea of mom and dad being married and children born into that intact relationship has really quickly become something that's fading into yesteryear. That's the way that it used to be. Now today we're told that things are different. As a matter of fact, there was a recent poll taken, and 40% of the American population that was polled, that's four, you know, four out, of, uh, out of ten people, said that they believe that marriage is obsolete. It's something that is passe. It's something that is no longer important. And, and, and as a result of that, I believe this is why so many people are living together outside the bonds of marriage. They're living together without the benefit of, of marriage. And more than half of the births to women under 30 years old are out of wedlock. And this is the way that people are viewing uh, the relationship of marriage. It's outdated. It's, uh, you know, something that we no longer need. Uh, but I've got to tell you, despite the views that people have of marriage, according to our text that we just looked at right here, marriage is designed by God. 
And it is for our good. Remember what he said to begin with. It's not good for a man to be alone. So marriage is something that's good. The relationship is good. Now, believe me, sometimes it goes bad because bad people cause the relationship to be bad, not the relationship causing good people to become bad. It is a good relationship. It's good for men. It's good for women. And it's good for children. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, in talking about the solid relationship there, he said, else your children were unclean, but now they are holy. It is a relationship that is good for all involved. But despite that, as we said earlier, nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. But somebody was quick to point out, well, J.R., you do realize that the divorce rate is declining. But do you know why that is? Because more people are not getting married. But those who do get married, still nearly half of those marriages end in divorce. But despite... Uh, and despite, I guess I should say, the, the sanctity and the permanency of marriage, homes are falling apart even among those who are Christians. And that is a sad, sad commentary. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is home building by design. We're going to look at the design that God has for home building, and we're going to see what that involves as far as our relationships are concerned. The Bible says, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Psalm 127 and verse 1. Of course, we're not talking about a literal house here. But we understand how important it is if we're going to build a literal house or a structure, how important it is to have both a good foundation and good building material. If we're going to build a literal structure, if we have a poor foundation, it's not going to last. Remember what Jesus said about building on sand in Matthew chapter 7? And this, of course, is true. And if we have some poor building material, then the structure that we build is not going to be very good. And, of course, we also realize that we're going to have to maintain that structure. There is something that we have to do to keep it in good repair. And so we're going to have to focus upon home maintenance. And of course, those things being true, it's also true in a family unit. We have to have good material going into that relationship, and we're going to have to work to maintain that relationship. And so our focus is going to be upon not a physical structure, but the structure of marriage. How do you go? from a newlywed couple who are, you know, just basically in love and, you know, just can't wait to get married, can't wait to begin their, uh, their, their home together. How do you go from that to fast forward to 50 years and have a golden wedding anniversary? It doesn't just happen. You know, the idea of fairy tales, you know, and they lived happily ever after. This is something that is indeed a fairy tale. In order to go from a, uh, you know, a marriage where two young people are madly in love with each other to maintaining that relationship throughout, gener- uh, throughout decades is going to take some work. It's going to take some work on the part of each one of those. And each one of those are going to have to contribute things by God's design. We're going to have to build our home by God's design. Now, this is where we're going to focus. 
our study this morning. Building according to God's design. I want to return to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And I want to show you how He uses the text that we just read out of Genesis chapter 2. Now keep in mind, we're talking about building a home according to God's design. Now Jesus, when He was asked about divorce in Matthew 19, replied to them by quoting the passage that we just read out of Genesis 2. And so I want you to look at how Jesus applied what we just read. This was where God instituted the home, instituted the family relationship that became the bedrock of all cultures and all societies. Now, when Jesus was asked about divorce, He asked them, Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning, now notice what He said, made them male and female. Now, that, that's pretty interesting. Now, Jesus said, you know, for this cause, or, or you know, a man should leave his father and mother. For what cause? For the cause that God created a man and a woman, a male and a female. Now, I know there's a lot of debate going on in our culture about that, but I'm telling you it is absolutely amazing to me that there's any discussion about this. If you learn anything about biology and chromosomes, let me tell you something. All of the silicone implants that one can have and all of the surgeries that one can undergo does not change the basic chromosomes of an individual. We're born male and female. And so as a result of that, marriage is between a man and a woman. Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, what reason? They're man and woman. You know, I, I, I'm going to tell you, that answers the question about what we often refer to as same-sex marriage. You know, i got to tell you something. Marriage is not a hyphenated term. It is not a hyphenated term. That is, that's not, there's not traditional marriage. There's not gay marriage. There's not same-sex marriage. There's marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. God said so. And I am not in any kind of way going to discredit or abuse, or ignore what God said. Marriage is between a man and a woman. But I want you to notice something else that he says. He says, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. That word joined is the idea of cleaving or gluing together, cementing together. Remember we talked about a covenant in the previous study. And this is exactly what we're looking at here. There is a cleaving or a joining together, a being glued together. Same word that Barnabas used in Acts 11 and verse 23 when he encouraged those Christians to continue with the Lord. That is, you continue in this relationship. And this is the idea here. You, 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 you marry. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And so they come together and form this unit, and now they work for the rest of their lives, cleaving together, or being glued, or cemented together. Jesus is using our text and giving us an understanding of it. He said not only that, not only should a man be, and be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Now I'm going to tell you something. When I get... I, I'm, you know, I'm a runner. I haven't been able to run while I've been down here. I've been kind of busy, <laughs> but but I'm a runner, 
And I'll tell you what, sometimes I, my running socks or shocks that I use and my running shoes, they get holes in them. You know what I do with them? I throw them out. I dispose of them. And I get a new pair. And that's the way we do with an old piece of garment, an old shirt, an old pair of trousers. But I'm going to tell you something when it comes to your spouse. Your husband or your wife is not a disposable trinket. It is a permanent relationship. The two become one. There is a uniting together here. You become one flesh. And notice what the Lord goes on to say. Therefore, what God joins together. That is, God yokes or unites a man and a woman together. God does the joining. Yes, we have to cleave to one another. Yes, we promise one another. Yes, we vow before God that we're going to become one flesh. But God yokes us together. God joins us together. And I'm going to tell you, without that joining together, a man and woman is just simply living in open sin. And Jesus goes ahead and concludes, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. There is to be no divorce with the one noted exception of verse 9 of Matthew 19, and that is for the cause of pornea or sexual immorality. But I'm going to tell you, it takes effort. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes endurance to be able to do what God says and keep this marriage together for a lifetime. Now, what I want us to do right now is I want us to consider some things that are absolutely critical if we're going to make this thing what God intends for it to be. Now, we talked about in the previous study some attitudes that we need to bring into this relationship to keep from separating what God has joined together. You may say this is a continuation or a building upon the thoughts that we put forth in an earlier study. But now let's talk about some very practical things here. If we're going to, if we're going to develop this relationship, we're going to have this home that God intends for us to have, we're going to build a Christian home, or we're going to build a godly home, or we're going to do it by God's design, how do we start having a successful home? How do we have successful home building if we're building by design? I tell you, I'm going to start here with something that somebody might want to, you know, challenge, and that's okay. But I want you to listen to my to my premise as I as I go through this. I believe that one of the things that's absolutely critical if we're going to have a successful home and we're going to build by God's design, each one coming into that needs to be a faithful and an active Christian. Someone who loves the Lord and someone who has dedicated himself or herself to serving God. Now, what I don't mean by this, now listen carefully to me. What I don't mean by that is you find somebody that's in the world that is worldly and ungodly and you talk them into getting in the water. And you talk them into getting baptized. You say, because I'm not going to marry anybody that's not baptized. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about marrying someone who, yes, has been baptized, but is a faithful and an active Christian. Not somebody who is nominal, 
Not somebody who has just been dunked in the water and raised and, and then goes to the altar and gets married. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in a Christian setting, the same attitude that Joshua had that Michael mentioned earlier as we began. And that is in Joshua 24 and verse 15. Joshua said, as for me, let me stop right there. Let me stop right there. Let me, let me tell you something. Joshua is showing us that sometimes we have to make a decision that applies solely to us. As for me. Now, I'll tell you what. Every man in this building, every man ought to be able to stand up and say just exactly what Joshua said. As for me. This is what I'm going to do because this is in my heart and this is in my soul and I am going to serve God as a man and I don't care what anybody else does. As for me, I'm going to serve God. That's where it ought to start. And secondly, Joshua points out to us that sometimes our choices influence others. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's where it has to begin. A family that's going to be successful and built upon the premise of God's Word has got to be a family that says, yes, we love God and we are going to serve God. This is what we're going to be about. My home is going to be one that is founded upon the teaching of God's Word. I am going to be a Christian. I, I love I, I love what, what Jacob said. You remember over in Genesis chapter 35. J- Jacob, all of us remember Jacob, Esau and Jacob. But Jacob... Jacob does something here that I think every father, every man who is going to be the leader, spiritual leader of his home, needs to do. In, in, in Genesis chapter 35, God said to Jacob in verse 1, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God. Now you're going to worship God. I want you to be a worshiper of me, God is saying. Now, here's what Jacob did. He gets his family together. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Okay, now listen. That's what he said. He said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. I wonder what kind of changes would take place in homes today if daddies had the moral fortitude and the courage and the commitment and the leadership ability to do exactly what Jacob did, call his family together and say, you know what? We're going to clear out some of these things that you've got in your room. We're going to get rid of some of these clothes that you want to wear. You get, you change your clothes. I remember, I remember one time, my, my son, you know, anytime you're raising teenagers, you know, somebody said one time, said, you know, the reason God lets parents have teenagers is because now you can't wait for them to leave home. You know, when they're little, you won't keep them around all the time. When they become teenagers, you know, and you get this back and forth, and I can't wait for you to leave. But, you know, my, my son one time, he, he, he come in and sent him off to get a haircut. And he goes, that's back, you know, when these guys were wearing what they call these mullets. And I don't know where they got that name, but boy, that fit. <laughs> and so he come in and he had, I said, I thought you got a haircut. He said, I did. I said, well, you go back down and tell that barber to finish the job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my son, you know, he got a little defiant right there, you know, and he looked at me in the eye and he said, well, Dad, can I ask you a question? I said, well, absolutely. 
He said, do you wear your hair in mine too? Ooh. Oh, you know, I said, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. But I told you, you're not going to represent this family looking the way that you look. And parents need to have that sort of commitment. When it comes, Fathers need to have that sort of leadership and have the same determination that, uh, that Jacob did. You know, we're going to be active in our service to God. Now, you want to have a successful home, it's got to begin there. Not merely just going to church on occasion. Not, not merely just, you know, okay, we haven't been in a month or two, so we'll go and we'll say. No, no, no. I'm talking about a family that are active and committed and dedicated and faithful Christians who are involved. You know what you need to realize? What you need to realize is that the marriage relationship is primarily... Oh, listen to me now. Yeah, people forget about this. The marriage relationship is primarily a spiritual relationship. So what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, that when you've got problems in the family, your prayers are hindered. When this spiritual relationship is in, you know, in disarray, you can't even pray and get through to God. So you've got to have this relationship with God in order to have a, a good relationship with your spouse. Now let me ask you something. How can a Christian and, and, and a person that is seeking to be righteous before God, how can, how can Christianity and righteousness be a focus of my family if I marry someone who doesn't have that focus and doesn't have that commitment, how can I have a Christian home? How can I have a Christian home when my wife or your husband or whomever doesn't love God as I love God and is not committed to doing the things that I'm committed to do? It can't happen. So you want to have a successful home? Yeah, hey, you marry a Christian. And I don't mean just somebody that's been in the water. I mean somebody that is active and somebody that is dedicated and somebody that is as committed to serving God as you are. You want to have problems? I'm going to tell you how you can have problems. You get this good, young Christian girl that goes out here and she falls for some guy that doesn't have that commitment, but I'll tell you what, he's a hunk and she wants him. And so she marries him, you know, and, 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 and you know, everything's good there for a while, but then, you know, he'll say to her, you have to go to church. You know, every time, you, you don't have to be down there every time the doors are open. What's wrong with you? You don't have to go to church all the time. Just You, you go too many times. If you love me, you're going to stay here with me. Problems. Yeah, yeah, he's going to say well, wait a minute. What, what, what are you writing that check for? Well, I'm writing the check because I, I, I give. You know, I, I, I'm a Christian and I contribute on the first day. No, 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 no. You, you, no, that's too much. You're not going to give that. You're not problem. And then when come children come along, and she wants to raise her daughters to be modest, and she wants to raise her daughters to be godly, and he said, you know what? I want my daughters to be over here in dancing school, and I want them to wear these kind of clothes over here. And, and, and then he begins to force that. You see the problems that you have? I asked a lady one time. She, she was a member of where I was preaching over in Tennessee several years ago. She married a man that's not a Christian. 
all of her children had fallen away. Oh, when they were little, she used to drag them off to church, you know. But not, not anymore. And I asked her one time, I said, uh, if you had this to do over, I said, I know you love your husband. You love the father of your children. I understand that. That's not part of this question. But if you had this to do over, would you marry an unbeliever? And I'm telling you, without a moment's hesitation, she said, no, sir. I would never marry an unbeliever again. I said, would you teach that to our girls? Would you teach that in a Bible class here? We need that. We need that kind of information. If you want to have a successful home, if you want a home where people love, you know, Jesus is honored guest, and, 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 and the Bible is read, and, and, and there are devotions that are held at home. If you want that kind of home, then you marry a Christian. A faithful, active, dedicated Christian. But if you want a home where there's tobacco use and alcohol and no prayer, no devotions, if that's the kind of home you want, then you marry someone who is not a Christian. You marry an unbeliever. But let's move on. We're talking about home building by design. Each of you be a faithful and an active Christian. And then you know what? You begin to apply the bond of Christian love. And you know, that's that, and I don't want to get technical here, but you've heard it preached from this pulpit and other places. You know, there are so many different words in the Greek language that we translate into one four-letter English word, love. In the Greek, there's phileo. In the Greek, there is storge. In the Greek, there is agape. And, you know, just a number of words that we just, you know, puddle all together as the word love. But they have different meanings. And when we talk about Christian love, that's not an emotional thing. That's phileo. Uh, and, 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 you know, eroticism comes from, you, you know, uh, the idea of eros, that's love between the sexes. And storge, that's love of, you know, natural love that you have for a child. But this idea of Christian love is something that we need to bring into our relationship in the home. Because a Christian love, you know, the word agape in the old King James Version was translated charity. That's a good translation, actually. Because the word actually means benevolent goodwill that you offer to somebody. And, and we need to do that in the church. We need to bring that kind of love into our relationship, even though we may have, you know, eros or we may have phileo in the family relationship. That's good. That's feelings. But there's also this idea of just a, uh, you know, benevolent goodwill. This kind of love that we bring into the relationship. Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 14 that agape is the uh, bond of perfection. And I, 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 I like that. It's a bond. It's a cement. It's a, it, 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 and it brings things into perfect harmony with each other. My son, I mentioned earlier, he's kind of outgrown that rebellious attitude. Now he's approaching 50. Uh, he's dealing with it. As a matter of fact, he told me one time, he said, Dad, I want you to talk to Seth. Seth's his oldest son. I said, really, what do you want me to talk to Seth about? He said, I, I, I can't do anything with Seth. Said, Seth, is, Seth thinks he knows everything. 
I said, yeah, I've been there and done that. He said, no, no, Dad, I never was out. I said, well, I've been there and done that. But, but anyway, my son is a bricklayer. He has a bricklaying business. And, and he asked me one time, we were talking about bricklaying business. He said, Dad, he said, you know, even though that you walk up to a wall and it just looks, uh, you know, the, the symmetric, just perfect, you know, all square and everything. He said, do you realize that none of the bricks are the same size? You're kidding me. He said, no, they're, they're close. He said, but they, they vary a little bit. They're, they're not the same size. He said, you're able to get that wall square by the mortar that you put between the bricks. And it's the mortar that makes everything look square. We don't think about that. But that's the way love, Christian love is. It is able to you just take care of all the imperfections. It's able to bring this thing into a perfect unity. And this is what we need to bring in to our marriage. A little bit of practice of, of, of Christian love. Husbands are told in Ephesians 5 and verse 25 that they are to love their wives. That's agape. has nothing to do with the feelings of emotion that we may have for our wife. A wife is told in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 that she needs to learn to love agape her husband. Bring this Christian love into this relationship. Now, let me show you what that love looks like. First, first Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says in verse 4, Love suffers long. You know how the idea is patient. You're patient with your spouse. Love suffers long, is kind, does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, that is, it's not arrogant. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, its own what? Its own way, its own anything. It's not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you know how he concludes that? He said, love never fails. You bring that into a family relationship. You nurture it. You cultivate it. And I'll tell you what, that marriage will not die. It will prosper. But if we neglect it and we, you know, forget about it, we're going to develop resentment and discontentment. And you know what? That marriage will die. I performed a wedding one August. They want an outside wedding. Can you imagine an outside wedding in August? And I had to, I had to get a tuxedo. I mean, it was, it was some kind of wedding, you know. And here I'm standing out there, sun beating down. I'm just sweat just running off me. But this was an elaborate wedding. I bet you this wedding cost maybe thirty thousand dollars. It was an amazing, an amazing wedding. This couple had. She come riding in on a horse-drawn carriage. Had all of these attendants, you know, coming out there. And oh, it, it, the reception was unbelievable. The the atmosphere was just something that you'd read in a in a glamour magazine. That was in August. In December, they were ready to divorce. They had a thirty thousand dollar wedding and a twenty five cent marriage because they were not committed bringing Christian love and understanding into that relationship. They divorced within a year of their wedding. 
They each married again. They divorced then again. And now both of them are living single lives miserable. Simply because they did not build their home by God's design. You each be faithful Christians. Apply the bond of Christian love. And you know what? Expect great things in your marriage. And I know that that, that, that almost sounds as though it, it, it doesn't make any sense. But it does. You need to expect some great things in your marriage. God designed your marriage. God joined you together, so it's got to be good. And so I'm going to expect good things. I was teaching a class one time of young married couples. And I, I was dealing with this point here. And, and As a matter of fact, I had a little worksheet typed up and had asked some questions. And one of the questions that I asked was, what do you expect in your marriage? After talking about expecting good things, what do you expect? And so there's one old fellow in the class, and I, I'll just let it go with that. But uh, anyway, I called on him. And I said, what, what is it that you expect? And when he answered me, I thought, if I was his wife, I would slap him right there in front of everybody. I said, what do you expect? He said, I expect her to wash my clothes, and I expect her to keep my shirts ironed, and I expect her to have supper when I come home from work. And I'm listening to this. That's all you expect out of your marriage? That's all you expect? Then I'm going to tell you something. If your expectations are not any higher than that, then your marriage is not any better than that. And, and, and this is true insofar as, as ladies are concerned, too. You know, if, if a man, all he expects out of his wife is to wash his pants and to feed his belly, and maybe that all she expects is him to keep gas in the car and mow the lawn, you know, these kinds of things, I, I, I tell you what, somebody that has those kinds of expectations in a marriage and that's as high as it goes, they don't think too much of the marriage relationship. Well, I expect him to provide for me. Well, that's okay. God says for him to provide. Well, I expect for her to be a homemaker or keep the home. Well, that's good. That's what God expects of her. Well, what about, what, what, what are some other things? You know, we will to have some high expectations. I expect. I expect our love to grow. And I expect our love to, to, to deepen. And, and, and I expect my wife to keep the vows that she made, and she needs to expect me to keep those vows. She needs to expect me to provide spiritual leadership in that family. And I need to expect of her to be willing to godly submit to my leadership. We need to expect each other to love God. We need to expect each other to be faithful to God and be faithful to each other. And so these are some high expectations. You raise your expectations. What is it you expect in your marriage? What do you expect your family to be? You want to build by God's design? Be a faithful and active Christian. Learn what is and apply the bond of Christian love. And expect great things in your marriage. And then always emphasize the spiritual. Over the carnal or over the worldly. What was it Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4? 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know why he said that? He said that because according to Genesis 1 and verse 27, we are, no matter who we are, made in the image of God. God is the Father of our spirits. And so this needs to take precedence over anything else. The spiritual relationship that I have to God. You know, the, the song we sometimes sing, As the Deer, I don't know if you sing it or not, taken from Psalm 42, the verses 1 and 2. You know, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. And th- th- this is how we ought to be living our life. My, my desire, our desire, my family's desire is to be in a relationship with God and to seek the things that are spiritual. You know what this means? I'm going to tell you what it means. Just like we've got some folks right here visiting in this assembly this morning that are on vacation. And vacations are great and they're wonderful. But you know what? These Christians did not plan a vacation and eliminate God. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about don't make plans where God is completely eliminated from your plans. Don't do that. You know, we, 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 we're always seeking the... The, the spiritual rather than the carnal. You know, we've got to emphasize the spiritual. Sometimes parents don't do this. Sometimes families don't do this. Plan vacations without considering where we're going to worship God. Allow our children to get involved in sports activities knowing they're going to be away on Sunday, knowing they're going to be away on Wednesday, knowing they're going to be away during gospel meetings. You know what we're doing? We're emphasizing the secular over the spiritual. We don't do that if we're going to build a successful home and have a successful Christian home. You know, parents will sometimes work diligently to give their children just the latest. You know, you know, buy their children. You know what? I, I, I tell you what, now, I may be old school. I never did buy my children a car. I, I, I didn't do that. You want a car, you buy a car. I, I didn't do that. And I didn't provide my children with trips to Cancun or Acapulco on graduation. You want to go somewhere? Go to Smoky Mountains. <laughs> you know, that's just the way that it was. But but parents today are sacrificing and working diligently to provide their children with cars and trips and iPads and iPhones and smartphones and smart TVs and all of these other things. You know, you, I, I, matter of fact, I I, I got to tell you this. My wife and I, we bought a new TV one time. And you know why I bought a new TV? I bought a new TV because we had a lot of young people over and having a Bible study. And we didn't have the television on, but it's sitting right there where everybody could see it. And I heard these kids talking about, you know, i got a bigger television than that in my bedroom. And I told her, I said, you know, we, we probably ought to upgrade from this 19-inch. <laughs> you know, that's just, I don't think about things like that. But... Some parents are not like that. Some parents want to focus in upon all that I can give to my child. I tell you what, if you want to raise a child that doesn't appreciate anything, then you give them everything. They're not going to learn to desire anything. They're not going to learn to be satisfied when they get something that they've always wanted because they've always had anything that was possible for them to get. When we spend our lives 
devoting ourselves to accumulating earthly treasures, our home is going to suffer. It will. Yeah, we may be able to have a lot of things in the house, but we don't have any kind of relationship with each other. And then we may even lose our reward in heaven. Emphasize the spiritual. And then finally, be willing to sacrifice with contentment. Don't sacrifice and be begrudging. Learn to sacrifice and do it happily and with contentment. Jesus said one time, this is not anywhere recorded in the Gospels. And you say, well, how are you going to say that Jesus said it? Well, I can tell you, Jesus said it, but even though it's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Jesus said it because Paul said He said it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And there are a lot of homes that are in a lot of trouble because of selfishness on the part of husbands and wives and parents and children. We learn how very early to take, take, take. But we do not learn how to give to others. Jesus is the example of our giving. He loved us and gave Himself for us, Galatians 2 and verse 20. But you've got a family, you've got a unit here. You've got a husband and wife. And you know what? This old husband, you know what? He's not going to give up his childhood ways. He's not going to, he's not going to give up uh, his childish impulses. I've got to do this. I've got to go out with the guys. We've got to do this. got to have a guy's... You know, not going to do it. For the benefit of that man, not going to give it up. Not going to give up his flirtatious ways, acts like he's still single. Unwilling to give up his temper tantrums when he don't get his way. And a wife unwilling to give up her hostility, her domineering ways, her sarcastic tongue. You've got problems in a family where there's no sacrifice. We've got to be willing to sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, if we don't, we're going to pass this selfishness on to the next generation. And we're going to say, you know what? We're going to see children who are raised to be rebellious and hostile and greedy. You know, bomb something. Well, that didn't come from the right store. That's not the right brand. You expect me to wear anything but Nike? You crazy. You know, this, this, this is the kind of stuff that you get when mom and dad are selfish and self-centered and self-serving, they pass that atmosphere on to their children. Remember, successful families are measured by virtue, not by what we have. We need to learn that. We need to understand that. Let me close with this thought. I want you to realize that success in marriage does not come merely through finding the right mate. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, what I want to do is I want to marry someone who will help me get to heaven. I understand what's behind that, but that is so insufficient. I want to marry someone that I'll help get to heaven and will help me get to heaven. Success in marriage doesn't come from finding the right mate but it comes through being the right mate. So I close by asking you the question, are you the right mate for your spouse? If not, then the only one that you're going to be able to change is not your spouse, 
but you. Are you willing to make the changes necessary to have a successful home built by God's design? If you're not a Christian, why don't you become one this morning? Because that's where it all begins. Lay aside the desires of this world, the impulses of this world, the temptations of this world, and surrender your life to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that that Jesus is the Son of God, and you're willing to repent of your sins, turn from them. You know, I want you to look at me for a moment. You know, I do this. I do Every time I offer an invitation, I do that. I make this little gesture with my fingers. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of, a lot of people even make fun of old J.R. for doing that. But there's a reason that I do that. Because, you know, repentance is a theological word. You don't use that word probably every day in your vocabulary. But you understand it. It's as if you're out here on I-95 and you're going south and you repent, you turn. You change your mind and then you turn, now you go north. And this is, this is the way that repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So think of repentance as a U-turn. You're going away from God, now you repent, you turn toward God. You repent. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about repentance, repenting toward God. And that's something everybody can understand. They may not like it, but they can understand. i got, got a grandson, Adam. When Adam was about six years old, he, he sat on the front row. A lot of my grandsons sat on the front row where I was preaching. And, and I'd do this. I'd make this little gesture. You know, repent. Yeah. And, uh, and, and one day his sister, his older sister, told me about it. One day Adam was out playing with a little friend. And Adam said to, said to his friend, he said, Hey, turn around and look. I'm going to show you something. And the friend ignored him. Yeah, you don't ignore a six-year-old. But the friend was ignoring him. And Adam said, No, hey, turn around. Really, I'm going to show you something. And the friend just ignored him again. And so Adam finally walked up to the friend and he grabbed him by the shoulders like this and he gave him a 180 and said, I told you to repent. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. If a six-year-old knows what repentance is, you do. And I do. It's turning away from a life of sin and turning, turning to God. If you're willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You can be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, raised to walk in newness of life. And then you've taken the first step to building your home by God's design. So why don't you do that right now while you're thinking about it? As together we stand and as we sing.
made better by uh, JR's diligence and willingness to say what needs to be said. Uh, there's been some moments where JR said some things that grabs your attention, makes you think about, you know, just where you stand and where you uh, need to do better. So appreciate that, JR, very much for your, your efforts at this point and uh, for that couple of days. Uh, we meet back again at 2 o'clock.